This is The Lack with Nina Power and Benjamin Studebaker. Today we're doing Video Drum. I'll kick us off. Video Drum came out in 1983. David Cronenberg is the director. The film follows a guy who runs an obscure Canadian television station. He is constantly looking for edgy sexual content that will get people's attention. In his quest for ever more stimulating material, he comes upon a show called Videodrome. It depicts nothing but torture and murder. For the TV guy, this is just the thing. But as it turns out, Videodrome is a secret government program designed to ensnare perverts. If you watch it, it causes your mind and body to transform, turning you into a programmable tool of the state. Our TV guy assassinates people on his master's orders until one of the people he's sent to kill manages to get him to watch another video. This other video reprograms him to kill his masters in the name of something called the new flesh. Eventually, it even compels him to kill himself, allowing his body to fully transform. Along the way, we meet a dead professor who lives on through the thousands of videos he's made of himself over the years. These videos are copied and mailed to people by his daughter so that he may continue to give interviews and influence public discourse. The dead professor suggests that what we see on TV is real insofar as it plays on our retina in precisely the same way real life does. So what we watch is our experience and becomes part of who we are. It follows that if you watch Drek, you become Drek. And because this is a Cronenberg film, the ideological transformation is expressed biologically. We also meet a woman who opposes stimulating films intellectually, but has a weakness for them in her personal life. She believes these films are ruining her, but she cannot stop watching them. Eventually, this leads her to audition to be part of the Videodrome films, and she is killed on screen. The film's argument is effectively an old platonic one, that when we imitate something, we become more like that thing. And when we consume imitative art, that art distorts our understanding of reality. The argument became dominant in the 80s when Christian conservatives became worried about the proliferation of sex and violence on TV. In the film, the agent of the state-running Videodrome is very clearly a figure of the post-war era, a man in a suit, more at home in the 50s than in the 80s, a reactionary hoping to restore cultural order. But the film recognizes these men of the 50s as propagandists, as men who hope to control the culture through the video form. So while the film is critical of the TV guy and his penchant for disturbing content, it is also critical of the 50s propagandists who sought to use TV to control people. By extension, it is critical of 80s conservatism and of the attempt to return to a more curated form of mass media. What about the counter-programming our TV guy receives late in the film? This counter-programming seems necessary to defeat the programming of Videodrome, but it does not leave our TV guy in an elevated position. He is not freed from programming or from the physical transformations. Instead, he is reprogrammed and endures further changes to his physical form. Eventually, the counter-programming pushes him to embrace a total transformation of his form. He becomes something alien to us, something non-human. This, perhaps is how the boomers, who still watch TV, view those of us who surf the web. Young people have received a counter-programming through the internet that does not liberate them from programming, but instead pushes them to embrace an altogether different sort of propaganda. This then drives them to attack the culture of the boomers, a culture that was forged by the experience of watching TV. The internet allows us to acquire fringe beliefs that make no sense to most people. We can shout slogans like long live the new flash with no concern for whether those slogans successfully communicate any positive message to the uninitiated. But this does not seem to produce a culture that cannot be curated by the state. On the contrary, it merely opens up new fronts for the agents of the state to muck around in. Very little of internet politics is genuinely subversive or threatening. Many of the ostensibly critical perspectives online produce no political action or political action that is counterproductive. The Internet has not produced a revolutionary generation. If anything, it has produced a generation that cannot distinguish speech from action and so cannot act. The primary function of TV was never to get anyone to do anything. It was rather to prevent people from doing things they might otherwise do. 
When you go home from work, instead of doing something useful with your energy, you'd sit in front of the TV. The primary function of the smartphone is the same thing, to siphon any remaining energy before that energy can be put to subversive use. The trouble with the television is that it is too obviously a passive activity. In making the show interactive, in allowing you to post as well as view, the show invites you to think that you can act by watching. That is the genius of social media. It is really just TV by alternative means. You see, Plato's argument concerning imitation is often understood in a one-dimensional way. It is not simply that we become like what we imitate or that we are influenced by the art we consume. More fundamentally, we become confused about what is real and what is symbolic. In taking mere signs to be more real than their reference, we elevate language and communication to the level of reality, to the level of the thing in itself. This invites us to imagine that when we communicate, we are constructing reality, but we are not changing anything. We are merely inventing new ways of describing things, mistaking these redescriptions for action. Absorbed in the play of signs, we become not only disinterested in reality, we treat the notion of reality as an imposition upon our play. We spend all of our time away from work, speaking and watching other people speak. It must be assumed that language drives action, because if it doesn't, then our speech is politically meaningless, and politically, speech is all we have. In this respect, we are like the Athenian orator, who imagines that he moves the crowd with his speeches. But really, Athens is a soup of libidinal energy, in which both the speaker and the listener are trapped. The soup swirls around, and the speaker thinks he stirs it. Real politics is not the play of symbols. It is the act of reconstituting the city, of changing its fundamental form. That, for Plato, is the task of the philosopher. But for the philosopher to do this, the philosopher must be able to clearly distinguish rhetoric from philosophy, appearance from reality, speech from action. Otherwise, the philosopher's energies will be diverted back into the libidinal soup of democratic politics. Like social media, Athenian democracy was a playpen. For Plato, the point was not to have fun. The point was to escape, to see what lies beyond, and, insofar as this is possible, to replace the playpen with something that captures what is really real, something that is meaningful. Anyway, that's my take on the film. Let's hear what Nina thinks. Yes, very good. Very nice. I, I like your point about the the internet and being a new form of television, because I think one of the great ambiguities of this film is this sort of supposed opposition between vid video, the control of Videodrome and the new flesh. But it's not at all clear <laughs> that one is less oppressive than the other, ultimately. And, and of course, the you know, what you have maybe is the kind of shift from a kind of phantasmatic space in Videodrome in which everything becomes a game or you can control people in order to even commit assassinations to the the sort of real of the flesh, the real of the body. Um, and it, it's, it was fascinating to rewatch this film after having seen Crimes of the Future, which I don't know if you, did you see Crimes of the Future? The more most recent credit, but well, it's, it's, but it was just listening to you that it occurred to me, Cronenberg sets Crimes of the Future in Athens. Right, and it's never—it's never just until this moment not occurred to me. I thought he was using it because it's an amazing, cool city and it's an, a wonderful backdrop, and it's this kind of full of graffiti and all these abandoned buildings. But actually, I think it, he may be making a point closer to the one you're making about the origin of thinking about mimesis um, and and West the trajectory of Western thought around the question of representation. So that that was very interesting. But one thing that also links this 1983 work with later Cronenberg, more recent Cronenberg, which I'd forgotten about, is the suggestion that it is possible to grow new organs. So in Crimes of the Future, I don't, without ruining it for you, one of the trajectories that humanity takes in its kind of tr transhumanist, posthumanist incarnation is the ability in some humans to grow new organs that are able to, for example, digest plastic. And there's all this kind of question about whether this is fundamentally an aesthetic development, whether this is fundamentally a technological development, or whether this development is fundamentally wrong. And so you kind of have a sort of anti-technological move in the film. But all of these different av avenues are explored. 
But in Videodrome, you already have Brian Oblivion, as you point out, is who exists in this semiotic post-death space of the videotapes, um, controlled by his very beautiful daughter. And all the women are insanely beautiful in this film. Um, <laughs> one has to say. Um, Brian Oblivion says early on in the film, in one of the videotapes of him, that he has a growth in his head that's not a tumour. He says it's not an uncontrolled, undirected little bubbling pot of flesh, but it is in fact a new organ, a new part of the brain. And this, so so Cronenberg has been for, um, you know, the the best part of 40 years pursuing this, this idea of, of the new organ and what it means for, for humanity to um, evolve in a kind of symbiotic or parasitic relation to technology and uh, extraordinary because it also forces reflection, I think, on the fact that we do have residual organs. I don't know what the correct scientific word for them, but, you know, that like the um, appendix, for example. Vestigial. Vestigial, exactly. Like we have the vestigial tail, we have the, the, the vestigial appendix, which occasionally erupts, erupts, erupts no, what do you call it? Ruptures, erupts, <laughs> ruptures, and, you know, causes potential problems for people. You know, many people have had appendicitis. Uh, you know, the, the also teeth, we have um, wisdom teeth that we don't necessarily use, or some human beings have wisdom teeth. So, you know, we have these actually bizarre encounters precisely with our flesh, which is in part redundant or in a process of development or in a, you know, so, so in a way, of course, Cronenberg is extending that um, question of the use of organs or the uselessness of them. And, and really by doing so, raising the question of what the human body actually is. And in relation then, I think from the transition from Videodrome's fantasy space, which is the sort of psychoanalytic space really of desire, of course, it's graphic, right? Of course, it's you know, and and of course, the in the first half, the the indecision over whether Videodrome is real or not. Of course, he thinks the main character thinks it. Max Ren thinks it is fictionalized that the act that it's actors performing these sadistic, torturous scenes. You know, these kind of Sardian scenes. We we are then informed that it's all real. You know that these are not acting, and 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 you know you have kind of images of Abu Ghraib, perhaps associate now associated with these sort of torture scenes that we see in Videodrome. Nevertheless, the kind of projective fantasy that he has in relation to the Debbie Harry character Nikki, are oh, remain in that kind of space of of sexual phantasmatic desire. Right. That so there's a confusion between his desire for her, the desire for the image, whether this is pornographic, torture, and so on. And obviously, from the standpoint of thinking about the widespread availability of insane and infinite amounts of HD pornography of all kinds, Videodrome is tepid, potentially. You know, Cronenberg could see what was coming down the pipeline. I mean, these people in the film in 1983 are like on the edge like you say they're into sort of you know the weirder end of things you know they don't like softcore porn they're looking for something harder you know and, and now we basically live in a world of just you know immediate access it potentially to that precisely this kind of horrific pornography right on a daily basis so the phantasmatic has been kind of has reached an apex in the film and in reality more so, perhaps. Um, and then on the other hand, the new flesh, also a theme really explored in Existence and other many other Cronenberg films, which is this kind of, I suppose, this interruption of the phantasmatic with something that is sort of, un, uh, you're unable to place it. So there are moments in the film where, where like a hand becomes fused with a gun or someone is harmed in a particular way and they're left with a kind of stump, but none of it really makes sense. Um, when, for example, when the, he, when Max Ren kills the, the head of the optical organization, he's at the conference and he dies and his body is sort of like morphing and exploding with all of these sort of organs and vessels and, you know, like, it's really graphic. It's really vis. It's viscera, basically. It's visceral, you know. And and that word is both a visual word and a 
literal word, you know, material embodied word. And, you know, so we had that visceral. So, so it's basically like the flesh and the new flesh when, when he commits suicide at the end or transitions to the new flesh, he has to kill the old flesh. He's encouraged to do so by the, the fantasy, the image. And then the TV kind of explodes in this pile of guts, you know, and again, the sort of fantasy transitions to the biological. And there's something so kind of extraordinary about that because it's sort of impossible to understand what the new flesh is. I was, I just kept asking, like, what is the new flesh? Like, what is it? <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's this combination of the, the extremely graphic and visceral with the technological, but in a way that is kind of um, incomplete, like the, the videos going into the stomach, you know, the, the, all the, the fleshy videotapes themselves, the way the television becomes itself a kind of membrane. Um, you know, it's it's very, very disconcerting and de- deliberately, of course, disturbing at a fundamental level because of the uncertainty and the formlessness and the unplaceability of these objects and this this embodiment and the and these body parts and the, you know. And and you know it, it it retains its capacity to disturb. I think I, as a horror film, I think it's extremely effective. As a film about television, it's it's maybe seems possibly a bit dated. But then, like you say, we can ex- extrapolate completely everything that's being said um, to the internet age. And I think the generational point is correct. I mean, my parents came to stay at my house recently while I was away, and. I have a television on the wall that I haven't used for three years and it doesn't work and it's not plugged in. I don't know where the um, the remote is. I never, I haven't used it. I don't even know how it works. And my father sort of messaged me on the first day they were staying for a week and it hadn't occurred to me that the absence of a television would be an issue. And he was like, oh, how do I get your television to work? And I was like, oh no, I forgot that my parents watch television so they they had to spend a week without television you know which is totally fine I mean they have novels they can you know they do talk to each other they're actually like very they're not you know uh completely immersed in that world but it was interesting to be reminded that actually their generation um they are part of that generation for whom television was literally the most exciting thing in the world when they were children not you know very few people had a television you would go around to the person who had a tv they watched all of the major news events on television um and it remains a big part of like you say that boomer post-war generation their life you know and their visual and, and like you say what what does it what does the television do it stops you from doing <laughs> and precisely like you say the internet and the, these new technologies are stopping everyone else from doing things precisely in the way you said by confusing words and action or online behavior and action which is why we've seen things like cancel culture and these phenomena um are pro- proliferating just absolutely bizarre so maybe the one thing to really talk about then is well what is the new flesh in the internet age you know like when we have um i don't know like think of that in that phrase like touch grass or like where people are sort of being told to sort of get offline like you're too online you know and i i often compare that to like 90s phrases like get a life you know we used to say get a life and if you don't get a life you're a loser right but that still presupposes a world in which a life is possible <laughs> maybe it's delayed and maybe you're a bit you don't want to get a job you know we've discussed uh um reality bites and these sorts of films before but you know there's still the 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 possibility of entering into a world which exists you know outside of your sort of extended adolescence um and those people who don't make the transition like don't have a life but now what does it mean to have a life (laughs) exactly and what does it mean to have a body you know we don't we did we don't have like literally videotapes in our bodies we don't have but at the same time, I mean, you know, and our phone is like basically glued to our hand, like the gun in the film, you know, and it is a kind of weapon and we are sort of bonded with our machines. And it's also our nature to 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 make artificial things. And so the confusion is just perpetuated, you know, the ambivalence um, and codependency almost. So I don't know, what, 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 do, you, what do you think the... The new flesh means like both in the film and and today maybe. Well, I think that 
the new flesh is some sort of uh, revolutionary return of the suppressed biological aspect through technology. So technology initially estranges you from the body, but then in some way you're meant to come through it. Like it's as if the screen is capitalism. You know, initially capitalism disembeds and alienates, but then you're supposed to get to the end of it and it comes back around. It's a kind of of Marxism of the screen, I think. So uh, I, then I think that what is the new flesh? Well, just as was the case with the new left in general during this period, the, it, the revolution never arrives. So the new flesh never actually happens. What you get is something which purports to perform this function, but only deepens the level of estrangement and accelerates and, and makes more severe the aspects of capitalism, which are alienating and estranging. So we uh, never actually got that revolutionary technology. That's something that's always promised, though. And that language of revolution is explicitly used by the you know, tech oligarchs and, and tech companies in their descriptions of what they are doing or what they're trying to do. They suggest that they're trying to deliver some sort of revolution. But that never actually happens. We've just deepened uh, the degree to which television and things that are analogous to television can distract and prevent and obstruct. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think that's really, really good. So in a way, like the new flesh is the promise of the real or the promise of a return to something, but is always binding itself to the new technology and the new thing. So, I mean, I, I agree completely about the language of, of course, you have people talking about creative destruction and or disruption and, and these sort of powerful well, I mean, of course it's bullshit, but you know what I mean? Like this this use of this sort of revolutionary language by people who are sort of on the cutting edge of innovation and, and machines and, and whatnot. But really, I mean, it, it does occur to me over and over again whenever you sort of read Elon Musk on, on Twitter actually tweeting. And I actually in many ways do have some respect for Musk. I do think he did something interesting with Twitter. But we we are sort of being governed by by men who are, are having an extremely protracted adolescence. And in a way, they're sort of running the the the, the firmware, the you know, the world in which we, we live is governed by sort of nerdy teenage boys who've got rocket obsessions, like both Bezos and Musk and, and slightly older generations with Bill Gates and and um well even you know, you know, back in the 80s with the apple commercial the famous apple commercial from the 80s where you've got 1984 you know big brother playing and someone throws a hammer at the screen and that's meant to be apple oh right exactly and for a long time apple was branded as the you know the cooler uh creative one you know for artists and people who want to express themselves and make music and film and whatever and and yeah and and now of course yeah so so i mean to try to imagine the new flesh the real promise of the new flesh post screen our uh, new screens not the television screen but the you know but but we've completely interjected the screen right like it doesn't it doesn't really matter if it's a television screen i like you say that it's a it's the same thing it's the same thing and we have internalized, you know, like oh, I, I get dreams. I'm sure people do now where you're scrolling in your dreams, you know, I mean, what have we done? <laughs> what have I done to my Really? Thoughts? You get dreams where you scroll in your dreams? Oh, yeah. Yeah, quite often. Or like in these semi-waking states where I'm like scrolling in my dream. Honestly, it's not good. I mean, I'm it's because I spend you know, time on Twitter just doing this like word addiction it's like sometimes i'm not even reading them i just it's just i thought you words. were less wired in than me but maybe you're more wired in than i, I think i maybe less in some ways but in i have some very bad habits which i seek maybe this is the the new flesh the new new flesh this time one more effort comrades if we can get there um would be to <laughs> because i because because there's something very soothing simply about the pouring of words you know and the, the sort of words obsession and it doesn't even really matter what they say like even if they're sort of calling me a fascist or something it doesn't matter it's just like words it's sort of meaningless this kind of like just stream of <laughs> letters and I, I mean i could just look at an alphabet i don't know i mean maybe that would be purer the more holy relation but i i don't know how to put it it's so so i've gone into the very bad habit for i've had for an, a while now of looking at Twitter before I go to bed, but in this half dreamy state, 
like phone just and then I look at it for 10 minutes and I go to sleep but that isn't good is and then if I wake up in the night at four I just look at it and do the same thing and anyway it, it really occurs to me speaking about it that <laughs> this is something that should actually be be stopped be stopped in recent days I've been trying to observe a rule where no matter what I've been doing on a screen before I go to bed I read a chapter of a book before I actually go to bed Yes, so it's very noble. I mean, I do read in the day, obviously, and and this kind of thing. You know, I'm reading a bit more actually at the moment, but um, you know, I'm doing this nothing event. heavy, but something nice before yeah. you go to sleep. Lately, it's been "Dance, Dance, Dance" by Murakami. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, I've never really gotten into Murakami, but yeah, he's a sort of people like him in that gentle way. I I mean, I must confess, I because I have an obsession with J.K. Rowling. I've been reading her most recent detective novel <laughs> and they're always about nine million billion pages long and they're sort of totally overwritten and she drags out the relationships between the main characters for like thousands and thousands and thousands of pages for no apparent reason whatsoever it's, and it's especially bizarre in the modern age because it's like if somebody wanted to sort of go out with someone they probably just ask them do you know what i mean and she's sort of creating this artificial tension <laughs> between these like otherwise extremely modern characters um it's completely stupid. But the latest one is about a cult. And she's actually done her research. Like, I really love J.K. Rowling for a million reasons. I think she's a fantastic person. And she spoke out when she didn't have to. And she's correct about everything. And she's actually looked into cults. She's read, she's clearly read a lot of books about how cults actually work. So it's actually very um, engaging. Like, it's not stupid at all. Like, the the, the main thing is that they're, they're trying to, to work out what's going on in this cult. And one of them goes, the woman, Robin, goes undercover in the cult. Um, in any case, what does this have to do with video drama? I mean, I do, I do sometimes think that um, all human beings are in cults of one kind or another. Like some cults are worse than others, obviously. Like the ones that sort of tell you to have sex with everyone and you know don't distinguish between children and adults and have some sort of mad person running them. Like those are bad cults. Those are really bad cults. Um, but in a way, like everyone's in a kind of cult, you know, or we're very cultic beings you know we want to be in a thing we want to be part of something um especially if it has a sort of slightly secret edge or something like that. even if it's a friendship group okay what's your cult then <laughs> i don't know <laughs> hanging around with disagreeable people who get cancelled all the time i don't know it's like my cult of the cancelled maybe well, I think what would distinguish a cult from a friendship group, right, is that there's got to be some kind of central apparatus to it. You know, like in a group of friends, there's often someone I, I, I like to call it the center, you know, the person that is the reason that the friend group exists, the one that everybody in the friend group really wants to hang out with. But no one individually in the friend group is cool enough to get the the center's attention on their own. So they can only hang out at the center in the group. And by being part of the group, they get access to the center. I think friend groups that have a center like that are quite similar to cults in that the center is a cult leader. The center decides what's cool. People get access to the center insofar as they conform to the center's notion of what's cool. And what you'll sometimes have are people who are centers unwittingly, who don't necessarily wish to be centers, but because the people around them think that they're cool, they end up in this position whether they like it or not. Yeah, I think there's definitely a temptation on the part of some academics to indulge in cold personality stuff. I've definitely seen it happen a couple of times. Um, and yeah, I can sort of see the temptation to do that as well. If you're like the one who sort of possesses knowledge and, you know, because it's very exciting. You know, I like. I think sometimes it's difficult to avoid it because people will yeah. make you into this figure, even if you'd rather not be. No, exactly. But I think there is a sort of ethical duty to try to resist it. And I think not everyone manages to do that. Like, I think some people do get an ego kick out of it and then they kind of encourage it. And it, it can become quite, quite, quite disastrous, really. And I, I mean, there are definitely examples I can think of in London universities where someone has encouraged a cold personality and gotten their members who even in some cases have a name that just dis distinguish them as people belonging to a cult um of personality to do sort of terrible things like destroy the books of this person's enemy or whatever in the library 
things like that. You know what I mean? Like, it's not okay. <laughs> and then the person who was sort of running this cult just left and just abandoned, of course, because you just abandon your acolytes, you know, why not? And then they're all sort of broken a bit. But <laughs> I wonder if for some people being an acolyte in a cult is, is necessary in some way. I mean, if you say that mm -hmm. most people are in cults or that cults are ubiquitous, then it wouldn't really be possible for people to resist becoming the center of cults because cults would just be a part of the way that human beings naturally relate no, or, or I, interact. That's right. I mean, I think probably being realistic, we have to distinguish between serious cults where people are like, you know, giving away all their money or, <laughs> you know, and being detached from their friends and family. And, you know, like there are clearly cult tactics that are identifiable and we could point to particular movements. There obviously have been cults that have ended in mass suicide, like Jim Jones. And, you know, so so we can talk about those at one extreme, really, as a tendency or a temptation. But then it would be more about the kind of everyday cult. So so I guess, you know, one one type of cult behavior would be sticking to a belief regardless of evidence you know like luxury beliefs things that like don't necessarily make sense but signal belonging to an in-group you know and i guess the henderson argument is that the the more stupid the belief in a way the more you signal your allegiance like to do you know what i mean because it says oh i don't need to care about the reality of this belief i can you know but it shows that i'm willing to entertain it yeah so that for you would distinguish a bad cult from a benign cult well i say i'm saying that, that that it would be an indicator of a more everyday cult it wouldn't necessarily be one in which someone is separate from everyday life it would it would be more along the lines of a a belief that's widely held but is kind of baseless or even dangerous and because you know the the as as is obvious, the fact that lots of people hold a belief does not make it correct. Yeah, so that would make it more about the substance of what the cult espouses rather than, Both. say, the presence of a master figure. Yeah, I mean, I think you can have cults without leaders. That's the thing. And I, I think we do see a lot of those. I think we see like acephalic cults that are based around a sort of desire to belong to a particular worldview and the performance of that worldview through the repetition of mantras and sayings, which reinforce the belonging, you know. So there is a formal dimension to this. The content is more or less irrelevant, but I think I do think Henderson's point in the luxury beliefs is that the the more stupid the belief, the more like the more luxury it is, the more you can afford to hold it, um, because it doesn't conflict with your life whereas if you're like a normal person and you have to deal with reality it would conflict with your life to hold beliefs that are, that are stupid but the luxury belief is almost like it would be the equivalent of having um soft hands in an era in which most people have to use their hands do you know what i mean so it's like showing demonstrating your belonging to an a quasi-aristocratic thought cult i guess yeah, it's interesting to hear it framed in terms of belief, you know, because a lot of the time with cults, I think about it as kind of a hierarchical thing where there's a pyramid and there are levels and there are mysteries that you get admitted to. And in that respect, it's difficult to distinguish cults from traditional religions, which often have either mystery rituals or they have masters that you go to, whether it's, you know, the leader of a monastery or the, uh, you know, a local, uh, you know, local priest or theologian, someone who you are supposed to approach as a young person and go, I want to learn about this way of, of living, teach me. And this person is, is meant to act like they have nothing to teach you and to uh, act like they don't have any kind of special access. But if you're persistent, they're supposed to eventually admit you. If you show that you are really seriously dedicated to this and won't take no for an answer then they do admit you. And then after a long period of time, you realize that they aren't actually the master, that they don't actually have something special to disclose to you. Uh, but in the course of discovering that, you grow in wisdom and your character develops. Right? That would be a kind of benign, still cultish in the sense that there is a center or a master figure. 
And the master doesn't refuse to be a master or refuse to play the role of the center. Rather, the master goes, I must warn you, I am not as cool as you think that I am, but if you insist on following me, I'll permit it. And then over the course of time, the follower grows to a point where they no longer require the master. So the master is still willing to play that role if that's the role that is demanded of them to play. Uh, but we'll cede the role as soon as the follower reaches a level of uh, consciousness or spiritual development, which enables the follower to become free from the master. Yes, I I mean, I think this is sort of to do with the question of pedagogy. Uh, it's interesting to reflect on contemporary figures like Zizek, who I think in a way refused the ma- position of mastery as an act of mastery. Um, you know, like to play the clown but to be is a sort of also a kind of mastery. And we had like clown-like uh, prime minister in the form of Boris Johnson. Um, and yeah, I don't know how to put it. Like there can be, all, well, there are all different kinds of masters. The master doesn't have to be a humorless authoritarian. Yeah. Sometimes it can be a trickster Zen monk who right. will surprise you or something. Yeah. I mean, except that our masters are not, even that good, they're not good as, that sounds cool, right? Like our masters are just like crap clowns. Well, liberalism operates on the idea that there shouldn't be masters, that you shouldn't need them and you should be able to develop without them, right? But then if people have a kind of cultish tendency or they go through a period of development in which they do require a master, uh, I think that the tendency is for people to assume that if someone is, plays the role of the master, it must be because they want to play it, because they revel in it or are power seeking, right? Uh, and so therefore, if there are masters, then those masters will, of course, abuse that position. And therefore, you ought to have no masters at all. But if you have no masters at all, then people who need some level of guidance to get going can't find any source of guidance with which to get going. And so the baby's kind of thrown out with the bathwater. Mm. So we have a society where you have no masters, and that produces a different set of problems from the society in which masters are ubiquitous and straightforwardly rule the whole thing, uh, often in a kind of power-hungry way. In a lot of medieval and ancient societies, you have that struggle between the master who is uh, genuinely committed to the spiritual praxis and the master who is intending to use the spiritual praxis to develop a political power base. And often, you know, mutual accusations on the part of different people that they're engaged in this, uh, often with plausible deniability on both sides. You know, I'm thinking about in the late antiquity, the disputes between the monks and the bishops, you know, the bishop who has straightforwardly embraced a, a more politically mediating role and the monk who claims to be above that. But then where do most of the bishops come from? Well, they come from the ranks of the monasteries in the first place. Mm-hmm. Most of them spend time in monasteries and then become bishops. So how different are these people really? Well, one would argue, one could argue that they're all you know, pernicious, or one could argue that they all are genuinely attempting to do some kind of spiritual praxis. And, and really, the truth is somewhere in between, because nobody is all good or all bad or all light or all dark. Um, it seems that liberalism has tried to answer this question by largely just by saying we shouldn't have any of these figures at all. Yes, but then, as we know, by sort of repressing them, they just come back harder. Um, and, and especially in a culture which doesn't necessarily have, well, let's say a, a political climate that doesn't have a culture that addresses these tendencies in any meaningful way or is so fragmented. Like there's no shared culture, right? In the same way that the Greeks had tragedy and comedy in order to cope with, amongst other things, precisely the new technology of writing. Um, well, and even insofar as there is a shared culture, it has to be leaderless. So you get you know, social movements where people are all familiar with the same signs, but there's no leader to discipline in any way how people relate to those signs or what they do with them or how they you know, interact with them. And so a lot of the, the movement immediately becomes internecine warring over what to do with the signs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like 20 years ago, the you know, Palestinian cause had a leader in Arafat, yes. and some people didn't like Arafat, and some people did like Arafat, and he was a complicated figure. You could have different views about what he was up to, but if you thought, okay, who's the leader of, of the you know, Palestinian liberation movement? It's Arafat. Now, you have a conflict you know, between Hamas and Fatah, and you've also got 
know, in the West, a kind of leaderless uh, Palestinian sympathetic movement that isn't really clear on what it's trying to do, that includes within its ranks some people who think that there ought to be a nationalist Palestinian state that ought to exclude Jews and other people who want a binational federated uh, outfit of the kind that was considered and voted for by a minority of states in uh, in 48 when the UN considered the question. I think the, the states that voted for it were uh, Iran, India, and uh, there was one, one other state uh, that voted for a federation. So you've got in this movement you know, a lot of different things going on, but because there's no one to lead it, there's no one who can say, this is what I, we are demanding and this is not what we're demanding. And that means that the people who want a multinational federated, you know, a multi you know, cultural society uh, are constantly tarred with the brush of being Palestinian nationalists who want to expel Jews or want to uh, hurt or harm Jews. And because there's no leader, there's no one who can clearly say that's not what this is all about. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, it's, you know, I, I guess you have the Pope. The Pope is a definitive religious leader. You have the Dalai Lama. Um, but you're right, politically speaking, we don't really have leaders in the same way. I mean, Joe Biden is like a hologram or something. I don't know. He's not a leader. Um, Trump was a sort of leader, but he was more in the sort of clown, jackal, you know, type. Um, but you're right about counter-movements. So, yeah, like... What do you know? We we having these big protests in London, obviously. Um, you're having them in various American cities as well, of course. But um, obviously, there's only really one major city where protest. I mean, there are protests in other parts of the country too. But what I mean is, like, protest is generally focused in London in a way that's different. Obviously, we're a much smaller country. So, but we've been having these major protests around Palestine the last few weeks. There's a big one scheduled for this weekend, which is also Armistice Weekend. There's lots of kind of outrage over this clash really of two different commitments um one to the remembrance of the war dead and the other two and and the the ending of of world war ii um and the ceasefire but of course then people are saying well but we want to ceasefire too like what better day to protest and they, they have a point um you know we also have li liberal civil liberties like the right to protest so they're not going to ban the protest at the same time um, what we do have is a kind of, yeah, leaderless amalgam of people with very different backgrounds, potentially. Like, so, so you have the, the, the kind of pro Palestinian left. You have large numbers of Muslim young men in particular, not only men, but we have a lot of, especially recent, um, migrants from parts of the Muslim world who, are from all different countries, in fact, and obviously Palestine is a kind of unifying cause for many Muslims. Um, and then you have, on the other side, I suppose, let's say, the patriotic people who want to mark the Remembrance Weekend. And uh, it's caused a lot, I don't know if you've seen coverage of the potential contention, you know, and you've had figures on the right, like Douglas Murray, calling for patriots to defend their history. You know, and it it it's potentially quite a alarming situation. It, it all strikes me as a kind of British way of trying to do Portland politics. You know, it's a kind of attempt by people in the UK to import what they think happened in the states in the late tens in Portland, the kind of combative. Uh, politics, which can then produce a concern for law and order, which can then be leveraged by the right. I think yeah. that's largely what happened in the States in places like Portland, where you had this sense of people going out and acting like they were going to fight other people. And of course, for the most part, they weren't really serious about that. But then the media coverage of these you know, LARPers could generate this sense of a, you know, a country or a city on the brink of you know uh, chaos. And, uh, you know, there would be some increase in the crime rate as a consequence of all of this because the police, their attention would be taken up with all of it. And it did produce some level of, of disorder, but never as much disorder as everybody would allege. Mm -hmm. Because everybody had an interest in exaggerating it because it is a great news story 
you know, oh, you know, the the far right and the far left, they're fighting in Portland. It was a great yeah. news story. No, no, exactly. But it was never as consequential as everybody made it out to be. And no. I think in general, the Western protests are not as consequential as everybody makes them out to be. For one, because the government in the United States does not really care about no. what people are doing in major cities. In this respect, Biden is a lot like Putin. Putin has protests against the war occasionally in Moscow or St. Petersburg, but he doesn't really care about those protests. Those people have no capacity to overthrow his regime or challenge or threaten it in any way. Uh, and the same goes for the students who are coming out in some of these cities. The Biden administration doesn't care. There was just a vote recently to censure um, Rashida Tlaib, the Palestinian mm, I had to, yeah. American who uh, spoke up and has been uh, mislabeled as uh, someone who who calls for ethnic cleansing when she doesn't even support the relocation of Jewish settlers from the West Bank. She's completely opposed to the relocating mm -hmm. or moving of populations in uh, the whole region. So, yeah, I think that uh, another thing that's really upsetting about all of this is that there is no Middle Eastern leader who can speak for a wider Middle Eastern perspective. You know, once mm -hmm. upon a time, there were People like you know, Nasser in Egypt, who had some level of standing and, and could say, this is what we think. And uh, we don't even hear about what Middle Eastern leaders think. The most prominent Middle Eastern leader anybody talks about these days is MBS in Saudi Arabia. And he's really a, a not very serious figure. Uh, certainly, he's not you know the leader of a country like Egypt or uh, or Iran, for that matter. Yeah, we, we, don't, sure. we, we don't really have anybody who is who is speaking up. And so what we've really got is is Biden and Netanyahu. Uh, they're talking and mm -hmm. they're deciding what to do. And uh, if there is resistance going on in diplomatic sessions, if there are Middle Eastern leaders who are communicating what they think, uh, it's certainly not getting very much attention. All of the, the leaders who had any kind of um, you know, standing as potential resistors have been gotten rid of, you know, like Gaddafi and uh, mm. you know, Saddam Hussein. You don't really have somebody around anymore who has a cachet, who could you know, go to the UN and give a big speech. And, you know, Gaddafi would do that. He would go and give a big speech and it would be long and it would be winding and he would spend a big chunk of it going, why is the UN in the Western Hemisphere? Most of the world leaders live in the East. And you know, I hate getting on a plane and coming all this way. He would do things like that. And, and mm -hmm. people would cover it. They would say, well, his tent has been erected in Central Park or wherever it was. Uh, you know, we don't have anybody who can really speak anymore on behalf of even the, the Middle Eastern states in a way that gets any level of attention. And so insofar as we, we hear anything, it is from activists who can't really speak for anybody. And we have all these journalists who write pieces where they purport to be able to speak for various groups. They go, you know, the, the, this group of people or that group of people is, you know, they're they're in tears or they're shaking or they're you know, terrified. And we're just supposed to believe that these journalists know what these groups of people are thinking or how they're feeling uh, when the journalists have not done anything to establish themselves as actual representatives of the people that they're speaking for. Many, In many cases, the journalists have no real connection to any organized movement. Uh, in many cases, they'll just make a claim based off of identity on the basis that they are of the religious affiliation of the group that they are purporting to speak for. But they have no basis for claiming to be representatives of the Jews or of the Muslims or of the Israelis or of the Palestinians. No basis at all in most cases. Uh, and yet, we're just supposed to take these representational claims at face value. The media is absolutely full of baseless representational claims these days. Mm. And I think that's because there are no leaders and with no leaders, you can have this vacuum that can be filled by anybody who's willing to to speak loudly. And then the media outlets that like that perspective will position that person as if they were a leader. Uh, and this also allows movements to be framed you know, mm -hmm. during the you know, Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party. Television networks in the UK would bring on people from Navarra Media who came across poorly and said, look, this is the leader of of these people. Uh, and of course, these uh, figures didn't really have any connection to the organized uh, movement. They were just people running a media outlet. And 
So it can be used both to promote a view and to denigrate it, to position someone as leader of something they don't actually lead, which nobody actually leads. No. And as we've discussed many times, you know, like the social media and this and the old media both reward extreme positions. Right. So it's like, how do you make your mark? Well, you get further and further entrenched into a strange position because it's, um, you know, we'll we'll get people to watch. Um, You know, I think it's notable that the Navarra crew came out of the student movement. They were the UCL media desk um, when I first met them and they were already there were people who wanted to be in the media, first and foremost. In the 60s, when television came along, there were people who led the unions and people who led states and people who had grown up in politics in the 40s, uh, you know, in the World War era, who had worked their way up through real in-person organizations. And so the media outlets had to cover those people, had to interview those people, had to talk to those people. Now they think that they can just be the leaders themselves or construct the leaders themselves out of thin air. Uh, and and there's no sense of any accountability to any kind of institution or organization or movement. None of it works. Anyway, we're going <laughs> to power. None of it works. We're going to go do the B-side where maybe I'll complain about other things or maybe we'll talk about something else. So thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.